What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. Feels good, too. Feels good. It's not a bad... Uh, it's not a bad little setup. I like this. It's compact. It's easy to travel with. Like That's what I need for traveling because, like, I took mine to all the total archery challenges, yeah. and, and I had it in my camper, but it's so bulky, and I, I never got it out one time. Yeah, it's a huge load to actually yeah. get it out and set up and convince people to sit down in the, in the yeah. podcast box. Yeah. No, this would be... I'd be much more apt to take it with me places if I had that. Yeah. Get the phone off. Yeah, I have no idea what my phone's going to do today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, it's publicity. What can you say? That's why I just don't really care. Like, yeah. Well, you, if it doesn't matter if you know you didn't do anything wrong. So. Yeah. Well, and it's funny if they're, like, posting photos of us all over their local news channels like tv local news channels is like eating yeah. this up it's absolutely insane absolutely insane. gives the locals something to hate on for a couple weeks yeah they got nothing else to hate on yeah yeah but crazy country that whole everything out there was just nuts that's the thing they say about um afghanistan like anyone who's fought there they're like it's like the most beautiful place on earth which like the regular people like me you don't think of, you just kind of think, think of it. like yeah. the desert in the middle east right but you don't think and then you see pictures of it and it's like you can see how they say it's like the most it's the most terrible place they've ever been and the most gorgeous place they've ever been terrible and beauty yeah kind of goes hand in hand sometimes i guess <laughs> <laughs> So it goes. Yeah. So, Josh, we're in Frenchtown, Montana, Montana Knife Company headquarters. Yeah. I just pulled in this morning. It's a nice drive over here. It's beautiful. Caught it right at sunrise for the first yeah. half. Gorgeous I, time of year. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Only thing I didn't see was any elk. Yeah. The whole they're, drive. They're hiding. They're hiding. They're, <laughs> they're trying to fuck. Yeah. Whatever they're doing. Yeah. That's where they're at. No, September is definitely my... And besides hunting, it's just my favorite time of year. I told my wife yesterday it's like 75 or 76 yeah. and sunny. And then it's like nice and chilly at night. Yeah. No bugs. It's just like perfect. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, also what we were saying earlier is like enjoying the last few days that are left of days of this caliber where it's like it's nice out. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. This yeah. summer was hot. It I mean, was hot. Every time I was home, it was like laid in thick smoke and 90 to 100 degrees. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah, no. I I had some relatives come up from out of state this summer, and it's it's kind of one of those. You kind of have to just plan your trip and come, but sure enough, they planned it, and they came on a year where it's just socked in and smoke. Kinda. Yeah. Was it like that up here as well? Oh, yeah. It was like that five days ago here. Oh, really? Oh, Last week, you couldn't see the mountains from here. Are you kidding me? And people, that's not even far. People that uh, they're listening to this, they don't know we're actually sitting outside right now. Sitting on the deck. Looking at the mountains. Yeah. Looking at the pond. Yeah. Cows are laying out in the field. It's kind of nice. Yeah. You got any fish in the pond? 
Yeah, there's a couple hundred rainbows in there. Is it really? Yeah. That's awesome. They're growing, and we just stocked, restocked them this year. I got an aerator for it last year. At, uh, we got some winter kill, unfortunately, with just got too much snow on the ice, so I'm going to put an aerator in it before winter. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the fun things at my uncle's old ranch. He had one, two, I don't know, three or four ponds, and they were all connected <coughs> by a little, you know, stream system that he had connecting everything and the browns that we'd pull out of four or five six pound browns it's just awesome so much fun you know you finish up hunting and go cast a little bit or you know jump shoot the ponds and bust on some ducks that's what i'm hoping by next summer um because they're supposed to grow like an inch a month so by next summer they're going to be getting pretty fun to catch and catch and release especially people that maybe haven't ever done something like that And, and it's a good place for my kids to learn how to practice casting a fly rod yeah doing everything you know learning how to do it instead of on a river or yep go get some easy fishing in and kind of learn it and then make them go earn it on a and if they lose any lures or flies you can just say hey yeah get out there and find it (laughs) yeah swim out there (laughs) yeah yeah figure it out kid (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) that's awesome that's so awesome so you were born and raised up here or yeah, pretty much. I was uh, raised in Lincoln, which is about two hours east of where I live right now. Lincoln's right on the edge of the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm familiar with it. I cross-country skied the Bob Marshall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. It was like uh, the end of January to the 20th of February. Wow. Yeah, it was a gnarly, Dude. gnarly experience. But you didn't see anybody either. No, no, there was, I think there was 16 of us. We were all from, uh, it was an old treatment center. I don't even know if they're still in business. It was called Wilderness Treatment Center, uh, just north of, I want to say north of Kalispell and Marion, Montana. And while we were there, part of the the deal was you got to go on a outdoor journey. And Well, dude, that's a, that's a journey. Yeah, we were doing peak climbs and the whole deal in the dead of winter. Wow. We did a four-day, everybody had to do a four-day solo, so they kind of gave everyone their own little 100-yard square radius in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the wilderness, and we had to either build a snow cave or whatever. It was, it was a really cool time. Wow, that's impressive. A lot of learning. Yeah. Yeah, that's rugged country back there. I mean, it's uh, no motorized vehicles. It's wilderness, so you can't have chainsaws, and you can't have anything motorized. And yeah. People ride you know they a lot of people used to outfit it i think they still do a little bit but the wolves have um not the wolves so much actually as the grizzly bears have just had such a huge effect on that area for elk hunting that yeah the guy that taught me how to build knives rick dunkerley he used to own mineral creek outfitters back there and you know when i was in grade school junior high early high school i mean their success rate on elk was 100 percent. yeah damn near yeah and uh he started seeing the decline you know, they started seeing, instead of, like, seeing a bear on a trip or, like, it, maybe a bear or two during the season, mm-hmm. they were seeing three and four bears per trip. Yeah. And it was turning into a thing, you know, where you shoot an elk and now you're basically fighting grizzly bears off of the kill before you can even get to it, you yeah. know. And that's one of the crazy things, too, like, out where I hunt, <clears throat> there's a lot of grizzly bears down there. And, uh, I mean... And especially because I'll go out there, I spend a lot of time out there by myself. It's like you shoot something, you got to have 
you know, eyes in the back of your head the entire time. Yeah. Head on a swivel looking in every direction because the bears will just come in once they hear that gunshot. Yeah, they started uh, instead of leaving. You know, a lot of times people get things taken care of, leave it, come back the next day and get it. And they started like basically it was like we're going to push through all the way through until we're done with it and get it out because if you left it a day and you came back, there's going to be bears on it. Yeah, and and then good luck. Yeah. You know? Did you see that? Uh, I talked to Isaac Aylman about. Did you see that post where uh, they had some grizzlies come in on one yeah, of their caribou and kills? Took Frank with Kafaro took his caribou. Yeah. I mean, they never they couldn't get it back. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Sal I saw the video. Two cubs, I think. Yeah, I saw the video. There's three of them on it. Like they were. She was. They were jogging kind of at him, and Isaac said he fired a couple warning shots, and when they took off. They happened to run past that caribou that they had just shot. Mm-hmm. And basically, she was running to the sound of the shot. Yeah. And they scared him off. Well, when they ran, they ran right past that caribou and slammed the brakes on. and Went back and ate them. Yeah. And then once <laughs> they were on it, yeah, it was. You ain't getting them off. No. Yeah. No. And I guess Isaac was like, well, let's fire some warning shots. Let's try and get them out of there. And he said Frank was smart enough to say, uh, no, we're, we're not. We're done. Yeah, we're not. Yeah gonna win that situation we'll go back and get what we can later yeah yeah i couldn't imagine i mean i i'm fortunate enough i haven't had a a bear come up on me while i'm dealing with any game in the field whether it be montana or california but i couldn't imagine the pressure of that situation when it starts to happen and unfold well in the grizzly bear situation in the bob and um you know especially in that bob area they've just gotten so thick and they haven't they haven't been hunted and it's kind of one of those deals where um it's even if they would just allow three or four tags for that whole entire area Mm -hmm. i mean it's not going to affect the population at all in fact they're going to continue to rise yeah but it would at least start to add a little respect value maybe to, to them to the person yeah to people yeah um it's like that lady she was just killed in ovando this summer Right downtown Ovando. She was a biker. She was camped out in town in Ovando. Downtown, right right behind the museum. Really? And it drug her out of her tent in uh, August and killed her. Holy shit. And that's that's three miles from the nearest mountain. I mean, right out in the middle of wide open in town. Grizzly bear. Oh, you'd, and you'd have to think that at some point the government officials have to start seeing or recognizing that there's an issue happening. And... They're going to maybe start exploring the option of of some sort of control and management of the yeah, species. Yeah, in, in, in the defense of the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, they've actually been trying. I mean, they've, what, twice now they've had the grizzly bear hunt actually on the books, but then it gets caught up in court. Yeah, and they shut the Environmental groups or whatever, and they you end up with a judge that shuts it down. So I, I think the, you know as much as a lot of our government does wrong in all fairness those are the i think the fish wildlife and parks does a pretty good job and i think they know they need to hunt those bears but when the when you have a plenty a plethora of people moving here that are yeah going to be 100 percent against it it's going to just make it a more and more of a difficult issue you yeah. know it's like california with mountain lions it's right it's impossible it's never going to change when you involve the court system and people who aren't <coughs> really actually educated on it yeah they don't, they don't have an inkling of understanding of what's actually happening because yeah. they're not out there. It's the same way with these logging, with logging situations. I've been making some posts lately of some of the places I've been elk hunting and, you know, there's all this blowdown and dead standing stuff. And it's like, unless people actually get out there and get off of it, of 
than an actual hiking trail. Well, even the trails are like, you know, when I when I go in, usually the trails where I go in at, it's like they're decimated with deadfall and, you know, trees that snap from high winds and everything yep. like that. You know, and it's just piled up, and you have to make your way around them because no one's come through with a chainsaw yet, you know. I don't know how actually people with horses are really even doing it because Hank and I were hunting last weekend on a – and we were hiking a, an actual trail um, that I would say probably most of the traffic on that trail over the last 30 years has been horse traffic. And I don't know how you'd ride a horse through it now because, like you said, it's there's logs laying across it all yeah. over the place four feet high. Yeah, there's a couple outfitters that I've met over the years, and whenever they're coming in, they always have a chainsaw yeah. strapped on one of the horses, and they'll just reblaze the trail. Cut their way through it. I'm yeah. always grateful when they come through because it saves me so much energy. Well, and that's <laughs> something that, that's another thing that the public doesn't really know about, you know, hikers and, you know, people hiking and checking out the woods and watching birds and all that, and maybe are kind of against hunting, but they don't really know that actually a lot of the people that take care of those trails in the woods actually are the hunters. Yeah, hunters and the outfitters. Doing the work for that. Big time. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. you just went on a sweet hunt, huh? I did. It was a good time. Yeah. It was a it was a good time. I mean I remember I was sitting in my buddy's backyard, we were having a pool party on like a Memorial Day or Yeah, maybe it was Memorial Day or I can't remember Labor Day or something, and <clears throat> we were all sitting back there talking about, you know, dream hunts and this and that, and I've always just had this, like, dream of two European Ibex mounts and the Marco Polo in the middle of them, and I got to go fulfill half of that dream. Yeah. I didn't go, I didn't go shoot a Marco Polo. Um, had the option to, and... I'm in debate. So where where we were hunting, the Marco Polo, I want to say, like, the biggest you're going to get them out there is, is 55 inches. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say that's, you know, anywhere between 20 and 25 grand. Yeah. And for me, just being the, um, I guess, asshole that I am with myself, you know, I don't know if 55 inches is big enough. I, I kind of want to go from, you know, 60, 65, yeah. something in that ballpark. And getting into those that caliber, you're getting – you have to go somewhere else, and then you're also, you know, doubling your money, you know, forty to 50000 for the hut. But it's nice to go out and knock this half off on my bucket list. And, yeah. you know, I got two respectable Ibex. I missed a tank of an Ibex at 375. Um the, the there's so many different pressures on that kind of a hunt where you know not only are you dealing with thin air you know above 12,000 13,000 feet you have for us there was three of us we had four guides so you're dealing with an enormous language barrier no one like the best thing they can say is big big you know and, <laughs> yeah. and show you the horns and say big and uh, <clears throat> they weren't really letting me, like, kind of get up and glass and look. And then when you're getting up to the firing line, you know, we're six people deep on a ridge line, 375 yards across from them. And, 
getting set up on a shot and then one of the guides is tapping you telling you shoot the big one shoot the big one and yeah. you know another guide's tapping you telling you something else and i'm like man i'm just trying to focus on my fucking shot like right i had lucas with me the whole time and lucas and i kind of worked out a deal where he's calling out yardages and him and i are just working together like we would on a normal hunt mm -hmm. you know and when you have two guys doing it you know a spotter and a shooter it's a completely different scenario than calm when you situation have, yeah yeah you know it's a little bit more calm there's no weird language barrier going on like they'd tap me and then spit out a paragraph at me <laughs> in kurgish and i'm like i what you, i got nothing i got nothing for you right now bud like <laughs> i appreciate you interrupting what i'm trying to do you know, and not only that, you're belly crawling and you're belly crawling at, you know, 3,500 feet or not 35, uh, 13,500 feet and lugging your pack and your rifle and trying to get set up and your breath is short. And what was that like? Like the, uh, how did you do like with the whole, I mean, cause you've gotten yourself in pretty good shape mm -hmm. over the last several months, but yeah, since, since winter strong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've trained, I, I trained a bunch for it, um, well sorry continue well just how was that um i mean i've never i've never been at that elevation so i mean that you can train all you want at i mean even well even, and the worst thing was majority of my training was at sea level in new yeah, orleans i mean even here we're only at 3500 feet here i mean it's not mm -hmm. i mean it really doesn't prepare you for 13,000. yeah i don't think anything really yeah. prepares you for that uh did you did it take you a couple of days? Did you feel like you adjusted or did Yeah, I mean I was adjusted pretty much overnight. Uh it wasn't my first time hunting or camping at that elevation. I think the highest I'd camped prior to that was in the White Mountains on a desert sheep hunt and we killed three really respectable desert sheep Kika outfitters in California. Um we killed three really respectable rams. Uh I believe two of them were over 170 desert sheep and the whole time 14 days you're camped out at Twelve and a half thousand feet, twelve thousand feet. Yeah. But the beautiful thing is, up there, when you get to twelve or twelve and a half thousand feet, your treks that you're making, although you're going to get winded, it's it's pretty easy because once you're on top, it's flat. Oh. And up there, when you're at twelve and a half thousand feet, you still have, you know, fifteen hundred feet of gain before you really get to the top, or two thousand feet of gain before yeah. you really get to the top. So you're constantly working, you're constantly putting in, you know, heavy breathing. And Were you guys going back to a kind of a base camp at night? And uh, yeah. like, what was the food situation like? Were you doing um, so, mountain houses or were they cooking for you? Well, that's that's actually a really good question. Um, we were told by Jason Wittemann, he was like, bring your own food, bring your own food. I can't stress, bring your own food enough. They feed you, but, like, sometimes it takes a long time. Who knows what you're eating? Who knows what you're eating? There's a million variables. And he's like, bring your own food. So we ended up bringing uh, peak refuel granola, uh, like mountain berry granola for the mornings or mid-afternoon. And then we were bringing uh, their dinners for the night. Um, and what I like about peak is it takes, you know, usually – two-thirds cup of water which is a lot less water we weren't sure what the water situation was going to be like when we were up there um, so we wanted to make sure we had low water they have low sodium uh comparable to other meals yeah other freeze-dried meals so i really appreciate both of those aspects of of what they've got going on with their food but their the food they were cooking us was like you know 
nice top ramen meals and you know sausage and salami and so it, it was pretty good yeah our, our i did not lose a pound yeah on the trip which i for sure thought i was going to come back you know 10 pounds lighter you know we put down 55 and a half miles boot miles um at 12 and a half thousand plus yeah you know in five days yeah that's so a we're, lot you're moving some days were eight miles some days were 12 or 13 it was all relative but at the end of it it was 55 boot miles and uh oh, getting tired thinking about it it was it was interesting man it was a grunt you know there's like i was saying there's so many variables in that hunt the language barrier the shots are you know vertical you know you got to you got to adjust for elevation you got to adjust for um your angle yeah everything it was it was <laughs> it was a lifetime experience 100% yeah no that's super cool yeah yeah it was fun it was fun i can't wait to go back and do it again i mean you know i always thought a hunt like that was you know really going to break the bank and the outfitter we ended up going with um a buddy of ours Jason Price had gone on a hunt in that exact location, that exact mountain range. And, you know, he killed a whopper out there. Um, I'm, I believe he also said it was one of the most difficult hunts he'd ever been on in his life. And this guy's hunted the world. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He's hunted almost everything. Um, but, yeah, when we were up there, it was like, you know, once after a day or two, like, base camp, the lodge is at i think 9300 feet and they were like are you guys okay can you go up tomorrow or do you want to wait and go up monday because we got in saturday and we were like no i think we're good went up and our photographer he kind of got like he woke up in the middle of the night the first night when we got to elevation a little hypoxia he started to throw it up a little bit and you know that whole deal but he got past it did you guys take I mean, it might sound like a dumb question, but I know in a lot of places you don't. Did There's you no guys dumb questions. Take your own, take your own guns. Yeah, I and prob- you didn't have any issues. Getting- <laughs> That's actually another really good question. Uh, yeah, going out there wasn't a problem whatsoever. Um, brought a hundred rounds of ammunition with us. Got out there. It was a little confusing. Were you sharing a gun at all, or me and Lucas were sharing a gun? Okay. Yeah. Which, if we would have had two guns, we probably would have got it done in two days. Um, but I think it was more fun that we were sharing a gun. You know, one time he's on and I'm on spotter. Mm-hmm. Next time, you know, I'm on and he's on spotter, which was, uh, wait, it may, wait, it may, uh, made it way more interactive for the both of us and as well for our photographer, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I took my Gunworks 28 Nosler, got out there. When you show up, the military is holding your gun, and they're asking for your paperwork. You don't understand a damn thing you're saying. Present them all the paperwork that you have access to. And they're like, none of this means anything to us. This is not the right paperwork. (laughs) So you're kind of like in a little bit of a panic. The outfitter shows up and presents the proper paperwork because they have it on their end. Um, What wasn't... um, told to me through our booking agent was that I was only allowed to bring 50 rounds not 100 rounds anyways the military didn't care they were like whatever you know it's fine no no big deal um they let me through with 100 rounds coming back out 
I had, I think we shot 23 shots throughout the whole trip, sighting in and taking shots on animals coming out. I had to ditch three boxes of ammo, um, pretty much military confiscation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was more of an interesting experience. They shut me in a little tiny hot room. They shut the door behind me. It was me and a couple guys in the military and police. And it was super uncomfortable for me because I have no idea what the fuck they're saying. Yeah. You know, and, you know, they're like, where's your paperwork from when you came in? Where, you know, they wrote down on the paperwork when I came in that I came in with 100 rounds. Uh, which, I don't know what happened to that paperwork. I never got given the actual paperwork when we left the airport the first time. Right. Um, so that was an uncomfortable situation. Checking everything was kind of uncomfortable. Uh, I think I made it on my flight four minutes before takeoff. Um, but our outfitters, the the people who own the concession, like... Man, they took care of us. They picked us up. They fed us the whole way. It was a 13-hour drive from the airport. Um, they showed us around Bishkek, Bishkek when we came back. Took us out for a great time. You know, went and did karaoke and, like, the whole deal. Everything about it was just, like, interesting. through the roof, amazing. You know, top-tier treatment. Uh, driving around in Land Cruisers and Land Rovers. Like, yeah. And a little... Uh, you know whatever you call it and had a really good time but yeah i would say like dealing with the military on the way out that was the only no i can see that would be stressful yeah uncomfortable part yeah 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 but enough about my hunt (laughs) we're not here to talk about me we're here to talk about you yeah and uh montana knife company and Everything you've got going on, you were saying that, you know, the guy who kind of taught you how to smith knives and mm-hmm. and everything like that, um, or forge knives, my uh, verbiage probably will be a little bit off because I'm not familiar with it. No, know, that's all good. Which is part of the reason why I want to do this so I can learn and understand more. Um, you started forging knives when you were just a kid. Yeah, I, I he was my Little League baseball coach. His name was Rick Dunkerley. He still makes knives, makes beautiful knives. Um, I actually didn't start forging them when I was 11. He he started, really the best way to start if you want to be a good knife maker is to start by grinding them out or cutting them out. Um, it's called stock removal. Uh-huh. And when you forge a blade, uh, one, if you're forging your first blade, you're not going to be good at it. And even if you are good at forging, when you get done, you've got a blade that's not, it's not perfectly flat and straight right it's got maybe a little crooked or it's got dings here and there and whatnot so you have to fix that stuff on the belt grinder and so it's much better when you're learning to be a knife maker to start with nice straight true flat stock Mm -hmm. just trace your pattern on it grind it out cut it out and then drill your holes for your handle and and keep things really really simple Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what he had me doing as a kid because uh, I would say of the knife making process, learning to grind a blade is the hardest part. Um, it just takes a lot of grinding to do it. Yeah. Um, there's no way around it. And some people are a little more um, natural at it than others. You know, it's kind of a hand-eye coordination thing. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I was doing that when I was a kid. I, I, he was my Little League baseball coach and invited me to make a knife in his shop when my parents had actually bought one of his knives for Christmas for me. And uh, he invited me up. I made 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 a couple and then 
just kind of something I wanted to keep going with. And he was like, well, you need to make them in your own shop. <laughs> so so I, I had a lawn mowing business and started. Uh, As a kid. Yep. Okay. So I started. Entrepreneur si- from the beginning. Yep. Getting no, I, I mowed all kinds of lawns all around the town. My mom would drag my little mower and trailer downtown. She'd drop me off and then I'd mow for however many hours. And, um, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So I'd use the customer's phone to call my mom, tell her to come get me when I was done and. Um, I started saving money from that, and I also worked in my parents' excavation business. Mm-hmm. They've got backhoes and excavators and all that. And so um, I just started taking the money that I was earning and putting it into making a knife shop. You know, I bought a belt grinder, kind of a, ch- a cheap one at first. And, um, you know, I started putting that in my dad's shop. My dad's pretty clean, and grinding blades is not clean. <laughs> and so... <laughs> It wasn't very long. He was like, yeah, this is not going to work in my shop. you got to figure just, this yeah. out. So he had an old, uh, not old, but he had a machine shed, uh, kind of lean-to, open lean-to deal just for parking equipment out back. And so um, we actually just enclosed a couple of the sides on that and closed, closed that in. And he made that my little, is like 10 by 12 workspace. F- fast forward to what you just, project you just wrapped up. Yeah. You know? And closing another lean-to here yeah. in my own place. Yeah, cool, cool yeah. full circle there. Yeah, no, I didn't even think of that. But, yeah, so I started making knives out there. And it's funny because he mounted my grinder uh, at the proper height of what he thought I would be someday. So he <laughs> mounted it for a six-foot guy, and I was a 12-year-old kid at that point. So um, it's funny. I had to stand on a milk crate for a couple of years to work at my own grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were pictures of that in magazines of me standing on a milk crate in my coveralls in the winter. No way. Cold. Do you still them. have pictures of that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. And so I kind of started building, an, and each knife I would make, I would take up to Rick's shop, and he would critique and, you know, tell me what I need to improve on and, and give me a hand here and there on stuff. And um, he, uh, that's one thing I never I never bought really until I was probably fifteen sixteen was a was a buffing machine mm-hmm. that was the a buffer is actually really pretty dangerous it's just a loose buff and as a kid it's a good way to have a blade get out of your out of control so when I would finish a knife I'd take it up to his shop and he would buff it for me so in that process when you were a kid and you're taking these blades to him that you're working on and developing your own technique and method and everything like that. How important was the critiques that he was giving you? Like, was he ever hard on you about it? Was he ever, you know, not a prick, but you know what I mean? Just he was kind of giving good constructive (laughs) criticism. Kind of what we need as far as forging ourselves to be the future person that we become. Yeah. No, he uh, he he was never mean about it, but he was honestly. I don't really. It's it's me remembering what I was thinking as a kid. So it's hard. Like I wish. But that's what that's what I'm shooting for. Is like what your feelings were. Oh, there were a lot of times I would get pretty frustrated. Like, there were times, like, even further along when I was getting into my later teenage years where I thought I was making pretty good stuff. And I would show them to not just him but other mentors that I was looking up to. Yeah. And I would I remember a couple times, like, going home crying, telling my parents, I'm, I'm quitting. Like, I can't ever, <laughs> like, make anything good enough. You know, like, it was never like, hey, that's really good. Mm-hmm. That's great. Good job. I might get a, like, yeah, that's pretty good, but this needs to be better that's not good like you know that's not good enough you know just like they were very blunt very forward um but that i think as 
people who, as kids, while we're developing a skill and a talent, how important was that to forge the way to where you are today? And well, the yeah. kind of product that you're putting out today. You and know I, I mean? was trying to catch those guys. Like, I wanted to be, <clears throat> as cool as it was being the kid, I kind of hated also being, like, I wanted to be, like, respected as, like, a knife maker, mm-hmm. not just a kid. But looking back on those knives, like, they were telling me exactly what I needed to be being told. Yeah. Um, if they would have just told me, like, that's great, keep doing that, I mean, I wouldn't have progressed. So... Um, and that's so intrinsic to the process of development. Yeah. You know, like exactly what you said. If someone's going to sit there and tell you, oh, you're doing great and you're 15 years old, you're not, where, how are you going to proceed? How are you going to move forward in your talent and your skill from that point? I remember being like, I was probably 22 years old and I was, uh, had some other really great mentors that I had met nationally. So a guy named Tim Hancock, he was from Arizona. Um, I was lucky enough to share a hotel room, uh, with him at several knife shows. Uh, you know, knife makers are generally like split a room, cut down on costs of going to shows. And I always tried to room with like, I, it's one thing I did was really good and smart was I always tried to room with like these great, like I would ask people that were far superior. Oh dude, they were on top of the knife making world and be like, you want a room together? Yeah, kid, sure. Come on in. And then I would pick their brain. Well, I remember going to the Atlanta Blade Show. Um, I thought I had, you know, this couple knives that were really good. And Tim made, like, what I thought were, like, the cleanest, nicest knives in the world. Like, he's just dialed. And I had a really nice knife, and I showed it to him. I was like, what do you think of that? In the hotel room, he looked at me and goes, I don't like it. And I was like, Really? And he proceeded to just tear it apart <laughs> and, and like gave me all these like th- this, if you're going to do this, this is how you need to do it. How did you construct this? That's all wrong. And honestly, I went away from there and I actually completely changed a lot of my, and I was already a master, quote unquote, master bladesmith. And I do get a lot of publicity and I've used it to my advantage as far as becoming the youngest master bladesmith in the world and it is a good accomplishment for That's sure. That's a huge accomplishment. I mean I was 19 but was I an actual master at 19? Like Probably the, not. The, yeah. No. Not yeah. at all. But like, you were perceived as that. Yeah. Well I, the... I passed the test. Yeah. I passed the test that they had set up but that's like that's like uh, getting your doctorate degree but are you really the best doctor in the world at that point? Yeah, you still have so many more years of yeah. growth before you reach that point. Yeah, and if anyone who passes all their doctor exams and becomes a, a, a surgeon, if you ask them at 60 years old, like they look back on themselves and probably be like, I don't know how I was allowed to operate on somebody at that point, <laughs> right? And same thing with the knife making. Like I, So I, I went home, even though I was getting a lot of publicity and all these magazines and you know all this stuff, I went home and actually like, changed a ton of what I was doing and like went all the way back to the basics um and started doing things differently and reteaching yourself from scratch yeah and and using what um some of these other guys were doing as uh you know so I still was doing some of what Rick had showed me but I'd learned some from these other guys and um I think that's one of the best things that you could do is like never be afraid to like do something different or, or figure out a better way to do what you're doing, even if it's something you've been doing for 20 years. Yeah. You know? The only way that I can compare and contrast that is like for me with archery, right? I've been shooting a bow my entire life, you know, and I've, I've for California, I've 
succeeded, you know, immensely mm-hmm. in, in archery for hunting and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when I go shoot my bow and I'm shooting with professional competitive shooters and guys that are like, you know, they're legit dialed 100% circuit shooters, you name it. Right. And they look at the stuff I do and they're like, Hey man, you're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. And all this where, you know, I mean, there was a long time and this, we're going back fuck six years ago where I was doing 120 yard shots. I don't do that anymore. Really? Um, but when I was shooting at that level for myself, trying to really dial in and, you know, be able to take that 80 yard shot if I wanted to, yeah. um, and feel comfortable doing it. The, the, um, God, where was I going with this? The amount of things that, that I had, uh, that I, the amount of bad habits that I had picked up mm-hmm. going through all of it is like mind boggling. Yeah, and and it's it's super. It's a that's a really good analogy, and and where those bad habits don't really rear their ugly head until you're like eighty or, or ninety, hundred yards out. Mm-hmm. And same with my knives, I could make you as good of any as anybody a really nice little hunting knife at that point. Mm-hmm. But now, if I wanted to make a ten thousand dollar buoy with gold inlay and all this stuff, right? I'm starting to push myself what would be the equivalent of a hundred twenty yard shot yeah. of a knife. Now, all of a sudden, some of my my lacking in experience and my techniques would start to rear their ugly head. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you can't build a castle on a bad foundation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's where, yes, exactly, stepping back. It's like, I'm the same way. Like, honestly, uh, I'm going to be going out to Dudley's this winter. Mm-hmm. And I've been shooting since I was a kid, and I'm a pretty effective bow shot, um, can handle... I, I think I'm pretty decent, yeah. but all a hundred percent self-taught, but yeah. I'm totally looking forward to being like, you tell me what I'm doing wrong. Like you're obviously a master of what you do. Um, why would I not very established? Why would I not listen to a guy first. like that? Yeah. You know, and, um, be willing to maybe make some changes to what I'm doing, even if it's uncomfortable at first, you know? Right. So no, that, that kind of stuff I do think as a kid, I was pretty, I was pretty good at if if I did anything well, it was take instruction. Yeah. Um, I never did think like oh, I know it all. Like I was definitely never that kid. Yeah. So, um, and I think part of that was because a lot of the guys I was around were <laughs> beating me down all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which goes back into that constructive criticism. And it's funny because you look at so many kids today that just can't take any sort of criticism. Oh yeah. <clears throat> at all and the foundations as you said that have been built on you know relentless years of constructive criticism whether it hurt or it didn't oh yeah man sometimes i hated them fuckers (laughs) yeah but then you go back but you go back for more at least you know and from my experience i go back for more and and continue trying to learn because for me that's the only way i learn you know and like you know getting into into sheep hunting and all that kind of stuff like you know, working with Jake and judging and aging rams and trying to figure it out. Like, there's so much constructive criticism that he would give me where I fucking hate him for it. But it was exactly what I needed and exactly what I needed here yeah. in order to have a better understanding of the representation of the species that I'm looking at and their age, their horn length, the mass, and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's. I think it's, 
in in all facets of life i mean if you're if you can be willing to take criticism and and learn from it and some of the some and you also have to be willing to sort through i got some bad advice that generally i was pretty good at sorting through like Mm -hmm. just because somebody tells you something also isn't you know doesn't mean it sticks maybe they've been doing it 20 years longer than you and and maybe they built it on a bad foundation they're not right so yeah um, you have to be willing to sort through things and figure out your own way as well. You yeah. can't just emulate everything that everybody does. Oh, for sure. And I think that that really falls into, you know, take what applies and leave the rest, yep. you know. And, and the best way that I can compare that is, like, I've never really been a, a big religious guy. I've never been a church guy. I was not raised in a church or religious family or anything like that. You know, but one thing that I can say is I, I do, I own a King James Bible. Mm-hmm. And... I consult that when I, when the time is appropriate and I reach out to the people that I need to for spiritual guidance and spiritual advice and they can point me in a direction that works and I can read whatever verse or chapter they're sending me to and I can take what applies and I can leave the rest and right. stay separated um, on my own accord. Yep. You know, and I know everybody's different. Everyone has their own understandings and that's beliefs, how, but. That's how it should be with it. I mean, that's how it should be with politics. It everything. should how it be with everything. Yeah. Like, may actually have your own mind mm-hmm. and and but also don't be your own individual yeah and don't but also be open-minded judge somebody else for thinking a little different than you think mm-hmm. you know yeah. exactly yeah no we'd all get along better and things would be a lot better right now <laughs> if, if unfortunately that that's way. not the case <laughs> yeah in a perfect world i know yeah exactly everything's a fucking disaster right now <laughs> yeah 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 so no, it's that's that's kind of how I went through. I mean, I, you know, kind of the Cliff Notes version of it is I started as, at eleven. I became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world when I was fifteen, and then the youngest master bladesmith when I was nineteen. So when you went back, and you kind of realized like there's a lot of stuff you need to work out, and you know some bad habits and cracks in the foundation you needed to fix. What was that like for you going in and adventuring into that process? And you know, like you kind of said, you had started from scratch again mm-hmm. and developing new technique and new balance to mm-hmm. your process. What what was that like for you? Honestly, I I, I remember it kind of being exciting because I had such I already had enough experience to where it was it happened pretty fast. I could grasp it pretty quick. I knew the idea. A lot of it was like how I was holding blades when I was grinding, using a rest instead of holding it by freehand. Like there was more of just some technique stuff. Now, when uh, you say using a rest, are you putting things on the side? So you're putting your elbows or your arms down on it so you can get a better angle or a better grind on it? No, just laying the blade, like the spine of the blade down on a table Mm -hmm. and then just using so now that blade's rock solid it can't really vibrate or move around and then instead of freehand yeah instead of stand there freehand and uh i can grind pretty good freehand but um nothing's better than a stop yeah and i I remember kind of arguing with tim like "Eh, i'm pretty good at grinding freehand and he's like not as good as i can be with that blade that blade cannot move like it's it's just rock solid, you know, and there were just things like that and some other construction techniques, but honestly it was pretty exciting because I saw the results fast. Mm -hmm. Um, and honestly, it's kind of like starting a knife company. I, I actually like, I kind of get a kick out of like that challenge of like that new thing. Um, I've bounced around a little bit on some of the things I've done. And I think a lot of it's just because it's like that unknown, 
mm-hmm. you know. Well, what I appreciate about the whole process is your level of open-mindedness that you had going into it, you know, mm-hmm. and that kind of plays into things that we've already talked about. But being able to reset yourself, you know, making it to a mastery level mm-hmm. and then, you know, I don't want to say not outshining the master or anything like that, but being able to take their their criticism and their, their um, open dialogue about where you're at yeah and then you being able to internalize that take it with an open mind even though it might have hurt hearing it Mm -hmm. and then go back and redevelop your skill to where you're saying to the point where it was exciting for you yeah you know that level of open-mindedness is like that's what you know in in my opinion that's what drives us that's what pushes us to that next level and, and gets us to that next achievement where we allow ourselves to progress. Yeah. You know? And it, it was cool. Cause I finally did get to the place where, you know, I'd say in my thirties, early thirties, where it was like, then I was finally going, 11 years my later. late, late twenties, <laughs> early thirties. Yeah. Where it was like, I was going to a show and there were guys I really respected going like, damn, that's good. Like, good job. You know, and it was, that was kind of cool to... What was that? Yeah, let's talk about that transition. Yeah, I finally got to where I really did feel like I was... Um, doing like something never, right. never exceeding those guys. Uh, I wouldn't say that because they're... A lot of those guys are still just on a really high level. But, like, I'd be... I really felt like I did become a peer. Yeah. Um, instead of the... the yeah, the taught, just you the were kid. becoming, mm-hmm. you know... I definitely passed a lot of, a lot of makers, but really... I don't know that I really ever felt like I I passed very many many of them that I I felt like I was really looking up to like the top five or six guys. Yeah, and it's like it's like looking up to you know Bird and Jordan and Magic. Like, are you ever going to really exceed them? No, but if you can become their peer, like that's pretty cool. That's insane. You know, and um, and that's where I kind of felt like like. D- Dude, I still have so much to learn. And actually, really, in that custom world, um, I've definitely stepped back just a little bit because now that's where, you know, I've, I've started into this whole Montana Knife Company thing. So um, it's actually funny. In a way, I'm probably losing a little bit of ground in that whole custom world. Yeah, but you spent, how old are you now? Yeah, I'm 40. Yeah, I spent so almost you're 30 40, years So you that. spent 39 years doing that. Yeah. And mastering that. Yeah. And then getting to a point where... Um, and I, and I've talked to my, my buddy who, he runs a company called Beg Knives and he sells. Is that Todd? Uh, Todd yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and he sells amazing pocket knives that he gets, you know, anywhere from God, I think 3,500 to 15 grand. He's got a pocket following. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely insane to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hearing from him about it and the whole custom knife world, like I, I feel like you reach a point where like custom knives are great, but at the same time, if, if you're really trying to make a living and you're really trying to make a career out of it and, you know, you kind of need to, at some point, you know, it's that give and take of, you know, production, you know, and having the best production and quality that you possibly can. That's as close to a custom knife as you can well being able to distribute to the masses instead of one yeah. person at a time so i i was full-time um at making knives for about 10 years customs mm-hmm. and um nine or ten years and then i had four young kids 
the economy started getting kind of shitty in 08, 09, and I was teaching a buddy of mine how to make knives out here. He was a, a welder for a local utility, you know, making 100 grand a year, paid vacation, 401k, like all the stuff where me as a custom maker, I was making one, you know, two or three or $5,000 knife at a time. Um, but if I mess something up after two weeks of work, like I just lost all that time. Yeah, you lost and, all that time and money. And then I was listening to the news and it was like, man, uh, what I'm doing, like the first thing people cut out of their budget are $5,000 knives. <laughs> and so I started worrying about like my future growth of what I was going to be doing and, and the economy and stuff. So I did. I took a job with the power company and uh, kind of went through. I started as a just a grunt on the gas side operating uh, equipment for them because it had that background. Mm-hmm. And the excavation all yep, that from your family? Yep. So I, I got hired on really as an operator. And then I quickly the next year moved over to the electric side because I saw there was a lot more potential growth there as far as uh, – the, the the work group was older. A lot of guys getting ready to retire. Mm-hmm. So I did. I got an apprenticeship and became a journeyman um, lineman for the power company. There's and good I, money in that. Oh yeah, and it's a great. It was it it's was a great career. It's a great career. I would and I loved it. And I would you know if I'd still absolutely I would do that again tomorrow if if like all this went away and I couldn't do it. But uh, um, I guess what I'm saying is over that ten years that I was a lineman. I knew, always knew I wanted to go back to making knives, and I, I, but I felt like I had to take a step back kind of honestly, even though I didn't really want to. I had to do what was right for my family mm-hmm. um, and make sure that I could keep my place. And, and, uh, but as I was a lineman, I, I always had the idea of this Montana Knife Company. In fact, I bought the name when I was 19. Really? I've owned, I've owned the name since I was a kid, yeah. Oh, wow. So um, I always had the idea, but I knew I wasn't ready I didn't have the experience. I wasn't ready to ever launch that company, but I knew someday I would. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but back to what you were saying, after my 10 years of doing it as a custom maker, I really only was focused on my own goals of becoming like as good as I could myself. But that's really, that's a hard way to make a living. It's like being an, it's, it's being an artist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you're really counting on individuals to support you. And, and, um, if you have screw ups and if you go hunting for a week, you're not making any money. Um, if you get hurt or get sick, whatever, like everything's on you. And, um, that's where the production world of knife making, I'm building something now that I can still build some customs and I can have heavy involvement in the company but like with total archery challenge we were gone for three weeks but my employees were still in the shop producing knives and keeping the company going um if i want to go hunting or or whatever like obviously you need good people but it's a much more sustainable way to make a living Mm -hmm. um and even have something you can retire from down the road uh than just being a custom maker i can't teach i could teach my son or daughter how to make custom knives but they would go off eventually maybe and be their own knife maker knife maker where I'm building something now that my kids can work in and maybe down the road I transition out and they're running it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, if I'm making a $10,000 custom knife, someone's going to be pissed if they find out I got an 18-year-old, you know, employee working on it. Mm-hmm. They want it all done by you, you yeah. know. So 
where with MKC, everyone knows like they're a semi-production, semi-custom where there's there's handwork being done, but there's also machine work being done, and um, that's also another reason I named it something other than just Josh Smith knives. Mm-hmm. So there's definite separation. If you buy a Josh Smith knife, you're getting a custom, one hundred percent. Yeah, and no one else has touched it. Yeah, unless it's like an engraver that does something special on it or yeah, fancies it up, but. Um, with MKC, you're getting something I designed. I built pro, uh, prototypes. Hell, I still work on them. Um, but I also have other people working on them as well. Mm-hmm. You know. So fast forward to, I mean, maybe a year and a half ago when you actually really started diving into Montana Knife Company. I don't know the exact start date. That's about right. Yeah. You know, um, I just know from when I met you, mm-hmm. you know, just a little over a year ago at the Total Archery Challenge at Big Sky. Yep. Um what that was and and i had actually launched we had launched mkc's website the night i drove down for that (laughs) so brandon called me like right as we were rolling into uh uh big sky he called my wife and i and said hey your website's live and so at that i earlier in that year i'd gone to winter strong at bert soren's with sornex and uh i took some prototypes i had built um, went and kind of demoed there with Neil Kamimura and, and I showed my prototypes around. I said, "This, I'm getting ready to start a knife company. And everyone there was real nice about it and said, cool, very cool, love to support it and whatnot. And went, around, went away from there feeling very energized. Like there was like a tribe of people out there that were... Building a tribe. Going to be supportive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about that whole weekend was incredible. But... Uh, so I went away from there, and I started kind of putting that all together. And then through those guys, I actually found Brandon. Um, Brandon Horaho is my business partner now. But at that time, I just hired him kind of as a content guy to come take some pictures. Uh, he said he could build me a website. And he started doing that stuff. And I started realizing as we were working together, like, this guy gets it. Like, he's more than just a photographer. Like, he's uh, he's a marketing guru, and he also, like, believes in what I'm doing and He's on board. Yeah. So last year, Big Sky, he launched that website. We went through the summer. Um, You know, I had a couple hundred knives. Uh, We sold those really fast. And um, later on, like I think around September, October-ish, I asked him if he wanted to be an actual partner. And I told him, like, I can't afford to pay you full time, but I need a guy like you full time. So how about ownership in the company? And I actually wanted it to be enough of a percentage where he felt, like, if he puts a lot of work in and this goes well, that he's going to benefit from mm-hmm. it. I wanted him being motivated. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we came to an agreement. And then, so I was probably last October, 11 months ago or so, um, we actually officially partnered up. And uh, so we're doing some more knives. And then by the end of December, things were going such that, like, I was getting to where my, my job was really causing a problem like i was not getting enough time Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a funny story this last december i walked into my boss's office and i was like look thomas rett the country music singer messaged us wants to meet up in big sky have a beer check out the knives and it's kind of cool opportunity you you never know where those are going to go yeah could be nothing could be huge you don't know and he's like well you're out of vacation and i was like well there's literally two days left in the year and my vacation starts over January 1st. Like kind of take no pay, take a day off of next year's vacation, whatever. And can we make this work? Yeah. And so he's like, 
probably not, but let me look into it. So the next day I walked in there and I was like, what'd you find out? And he's like, yeah, it's just not going to work. Just big corporate stuff. You know, yeah. like there's no, like, nope, can't work. And I said, well, I'll go do this job. You got slated for me. Um, and then I'll just, I'll, it'll, I'll be done around noon and then I'll just, I'll, I'll quit at noon. Like I'll be done at noon. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm done. Like I quit. Yeah. Like I can't. This isn't going to work. Yeah. This isn't going to work. And it wasn't a bad situation. And I had actually, and, and, you know, it wasn't a total surprise to him. I'd asked him several weeks earlier if there was a way I could take like a sabbatical, like a six month, just leave of absence, no pay, no benefits, like see if this knife company things that go. And they were like, no, that's not going to work. And <laughs> I tried to see if there were options. You're too valuable of an employee for yeah, well, to I let don't you know about do that. that. Yeah. <laughs> but I I was like, well, just so you know, like this is taking off more and more. And there might be a time I walk in here and I'm done, you know. And he and to the, all their credit, they were all like even that whole deal. He's like, hey, no problem. I understand. You got to do what you got to do. And he's like, I hope it goes well. Probably thought I was crazy. But mm-hmm. I'm walking away from a good job, you know. Yeah. It's a job around here that um, a lot of people love to have. And so, yeah, I went and did the job, finished up at noon and walked out. And next day I went to Big Sky and met Thomas and had a nice little time there. And and then, honestly, since January 1, it's just been, at that point, it was like full steam ahead. And, honestly, that was the moment when we, like, took off. Uh-huh. And we just went hard and... And since January, it's been insane. Yeah. It will see. And what's cool for me hearing stories like that, being someone who <clears throat> I'm in the beginning process of adventuring out on my own with my own business and, mm-hmm. you know, the flip flop and everything like that, like that gives me so much hope. Like, I mean, yeah, everything's going good and everything's going great. And, you know, in my head, I always have this drive that needs to be going better and need to push harder and need to push faster and everything like that. And that really gives me hope as someone who's early on in it yeah that you know you just never know when it actually the door opens up and the floodgates really start right start kicking right and that's uh oh that's brandon's dog that just showed up nice all right go on uh and that and that's really like that feeling of like not going fast enough or not getting enough done it's so funny that that's going to continue because (laughs) brandon and i have laughed about it we're way exceeding anything we thought we'd ever do this year. Yeah. And there's several times where we're like frustrated because it's not going fast enough. Isn't that funny? And, uh, and, and then we have to kind of check ourselves a little bit and be, be like, like, wow, wait a minute. We've already exceeded our goals for the year. Yeah. So like, we're fine, you know, relax a little relax, bit. It's okay. But also don't relax. Yeah. Like you don't want to just sit back. Keep, fo- keep pushing <laughs> yeah. forward. So it's funny. Like no matter, I think no matter what level you get to, you're always going to be like, got to go harder now for you bringing on a business partner like that has that helped you stay motivated and helped you keep that drive and keep that edge to continue pushing forward i i don't know like there's definitely some accountability there Mm -hmm. um i think the motivated part i would have always had um I think it actually helps more from an excitement level of like you're sharing the experience with somebody else yes and also i feel like I can take this bigger than I w- ever would have been able to myself because there's just only so much time in the day, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where um, the dogs are running around. Uh, <laughs> that That's where I'm, I'm pretty excited about it because 
I, I've looked around at some other models like a Black Rifle Coffee and like Black Rifle Coffee would have never gotten to the size they got if Evan would have just tried to do it all himself. Yeah. Right. And make coffee in his garage. Right. And um, I can see a day where we have to bring on other people as part owners or whatever, if they bring a skill set to the table that can help us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say that's probably one of the smarter things I did was being willing to uh, give up a part of it and, and, and relinquish a little control. Yeah. Um, it was a risk, but it, and you know, partnerships are always kind of well, high risk, but it can be high reward. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, I just knew to, for this to go where I want it to go someday, you know, I'm going to need help. Mm-hmm. And we're going to still, Brandon are going to still need more help, you know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing what we're able to, we've got us two, and then we have, uh, we just hired my wife, and uh, and then we have two employees out in the shop that are doing a lot of the everyday production stuff. And they're phenomenal. I mean, I've got a 19, 20-year-old girl now, she's turned 20, uh, hired in, a, in a, an 18, 19-year-old kid that just graduated high school. And they're probably better than most 35 year old adults <laughs> they're incredible that's a relief i think yeah. the work ethic is a little bit different up here in montana than it is in most places though i do think there's part of that for sure yeah um and we and i've told them like we're gonna reward them you know i want them just because they're young doesn't mean they can't grow and be a big part of this company going forward mm-hmm. you know which i think provides them motivation that they're excited as we are about yeah. what's happening yeah you it's know. not just a paycheck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we were laughing and joking and being completely inappropriate yesterday in the shop. And I was like, man, isn't it cool working here? Like when I had that corporate job, like you're always watching, you have to watch what you say and everything's just so like PC. And mm-hmm. um, I'm like, you know, there are some benefits to those jobs. Uh, you know, when I went home from my corporate job at 430, nothing mattered like somebody else's problem Clock out, deal it's with not it your tomorrow. issue anymore right yeah. here there's definitely more accountability and you're worrying about it 24 7 but it's also at that corporate job you also don't feel like you can really go anywhere mm-hmm. you just stuck there you know you're kind of stuck there forever which is fine it's a good way to make a living but this definitely has that excitement of like we can either fail or we can <laughs> we can go big you know yeah so that's pretty yeah. neat man it's pretty cool that's pretty neat, and you're getting to incorporate your family. And something that you brought up earlier was like, you know, you're trying to build a future where your kids can get involved in the company, and it can be a family-run business. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for that, man. There's a there's a lot to be said for that, you know. And it's you're not building a corporate structure, you know, where you're climbing a ladder in a company, and then one day you can hire your son or your daughter or, you know, whoever into the company, and, you know, you have a family legacy with inside this other corporate structure. Yeah. You're building that structure. You're you're the pinnacle. You're the leader. You're the spearhead of doing that and building the legacy of yourself and, and your family and where your family can go and where you can take your family through your own mind and your own construction of what you see as the world that you want to build and that is america yeah you know like 100 percent. that is as american as it gets which is so cool and it's for me it's been such a privilege just to get to know you over the last year and like watch what you're doing and watch the elevation thanks you know what i mean and like excuse me see the continued commitment on your end and 
um, Brandon's end and, and how it's continuing to grow and the success of it. It's just, it's, I've loved watching it because that's like, that's what gets me excited. And like, you know, well, and, thank you. and getting to know that there is that, uh, that opportunity for anybody who's willing to put their time and effort and money and take that leap. You know, it's like, I remember this and we're going years back watching, uh, my, bu- my, my buddy, Ben, uh, the guy I'm going to butcher his last name, Dedamonte, uh, shed crazy mm-hmm. watching him go from who he was to you know having success and then walking away from his job and then really trying to you know buckle down and and do his own thing and be his own person and his own individual and become successful at what he's doing and you know becoming part of canvas cutter and all the things that he's got going on in his life and it's so neat to be in a world surrounded by people where that is all of our drive and that is all of all of us are all trying to do and yeah. succeed individually instead of underneath the umbrella of a corporate paycheck. Yeah, and I and I hope my kids uh I've told all of them um you know, I absolutely hope that any of them that want to move on in life, do their own thing and and create their own their own way if that's what they choose or find their own passion. Um uh, they're not forced into this whole thing at all. Yeah. And it's like the pictures that people see me post of my kids out in my shop. It is only when they walk out in my shop and ask if they can do something. Yeah. I don't, I, I tell them they know there's work out there to be done. Um, if they want to show up, yep. there's work for them. And when they go out there, they clock in just like my employees do. They get paid just like they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they get the, the payroll happens when the employees do like, I want them treated as, um, you know, just as my parents treated me as one of the employees in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually kind of cool. Cause like a lot of people that have received knives from us have received like the writing on the end of the boxes from an 11 year old girl, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so cool. and she's labeling boxes and putting stuff together or my boys working on them or my other, you know, my older daughters, um, my older daughters tied a lot of the speed goat cord wrap knives right in the kitchen. Um, I'd bring, put little vices together on the posted videos of that before. I feel like I feel like I've seen that. Yep. At some point. And we just evolution tying knives right in the living room and they get paid per knife. So if you want to tie one an hour or 10 an hour, if you want to work hard and get after it. Yeah. Um, my oldest daughter, shit, she blistered her hands like crazy getting after it and like never slowed down. Um, so there's, but the point is, is like, there's nothing better than working with family and, and, but I also want those kids to start at the very bottom and have to earn it, you know. Now, do you feel like there's correlation, and you kind of mentioned a little bit, but do you feel like there's correlation between how you were treated by your parents when you were coming up and, you know, going on to be an operator for them and working underneath their umbrella and all that? Do you feel like there's correlation in how you were raised and what they instilled in you? For sure. To what you're doing now with your children? I was super fortunate to grow up in a house where they were so had a self-employed business because if they would have worked just a regular job somewhere we wouldn't have had that opportunity so that i i'm very thankful for that because you know um you know in the in the excavation world in montana in the summertime like you work seven days a week until the snow flies i mean and in california as well one of my best friends is an operator and you yeah. know he's got three or four months off when it's raining and yep the rest of the year it is like 100 percent you know, yep. full all the time, nonstop. If there's daylight, even if there's a little bit of darkness, you're yep. doing something. And I, I got to the point where just working with my dad from the time I was a little kid, I got to the point where 
yeah, by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was taking an employee or two under me, and I was taking a backhoe and a dump truck and going one way doing a job, and he was doing one in a different area. Mm-hmm. And it definitely taught me a lot about responsibility and pride in our company and doing a good job. And my dad would always come back and check the jobs and make sure that I was doing things the way they needed to be. But it, um, There's some oversight, but there probably had to be. But it was also really a cool feeling of being <coughs> felt uh, – like I always tell people kids are actually capable of a lot more than we give them credit for. And it also is a really cool feeling as a kid to be like, you know, that, that whole like, uh, level of trust, level of trust that like my dad is letting me take $200,000 worth of equipment and go do a job that he bid and is expecting me to do it well. And that's a and big, falling within the guidelines of the yeah, <laughs> yeah, and not and not uh, and 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 not like being right over my shoulder the whole time during it and what, and there's a lot of trust there and mm-hmm. that that's a super cool feeling as Confidence a kid and it kind of makes you feel like you can kind of do anything yeah and um you know there's uh, so my, much importance behind that even my parents allowing me to go out as a 12 13 year old and work in my shop all by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, with grinders and sparks and a torch and shit, half the things I did out there, they, they probably good they never saw, you know, <laughs> cause like, you know, you're, I'm just learning, you yeah. know, and, um, well, I pan, lost my pan, finger. A, pan of oil on fire and like, and I didn't know oil flashed at a certain point, you know, I'm heating it up with the torch the next thing, you know, it's on fire and I'm trying to figure out how to put an oil fire out, you yeah. know, in my shop <laughs> and then getting the smoke out of there. So my parents don't see. Uh, it sounds like my dad with his chemistry sets when he was a kid, yeah. <laughs> you know. But I, I really honestly think more people need to be willing to let their kids um, fail and let them have some risk. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's guidelines. Like, they would not allow me to have a buffer. Rick told my parents, like, uh, the one piece of equipment he can't buy is this, uh, you know. Um, so, obviously, you can't, you know. And when you make knives, they're not sharp until the very the last thing you do sharpen it. Mm-hmm. So, it's really actually relatively safe. It's more of like some of the equipment, maybe a grinder or a drill press or something where it's more dangerous than the actual knife. But, um, yeah, man, I encourage people, even if you have a normal day job, if you know someone who has a welding company or a plumber or electrician, like let a kid go pull wire in a new construction house and learn how to wire up a house. Mm -hmm. You know, I wired my whole house because I learned that stuff as a kid, just building sheds with my dad. Um, now granted a lot of it probably wasn't, well, my new house is to code, but you know, Back my, sh- my shop, my shop definitely <laughs> wasn't, uh, really very much to code, but, uh, it's all part of it. All these skills that you can learn or kids can learn or, or have them go work for an excavation contractor and check grade and learn how to chain down a, a piece of equipment. And, um, it's all skills that they can use someday. Um, you know. It's applicable to so much. Yeah. Yeah. Like you were telling me earlier, you built your own deck and stuff. Like being able to save 30 grand on building your own deck yeah. or putting an addition on or if well, you want When I was super fortunate, I mean, my dad swung a hammer for 40 plus years of his life. And, you know, he's he's a master craftsman. The, the way that he can build homes and everything that he got to work on and do, like, you know, that was part of the hardest. Well, it was one of the hardest things selling my house was the amount of... Uh, time and energy and love that happened between me, my dad, and my brothers building that house to how yep. I wanted it, you yep. know, and really getting in there and doing it and having a vision and following through with that vision. And 
you know. I it's mean, like with this house. I, I would never have a house this nice had I not been able to do a lot of it on my own. Yeah. You know, my house is, I own way more house than I can afford um, just because I did all the dirt work. I designed it entirely myself. I did a lot of the work inside. Which, that's a lot of money. Wired Saved. It. Yeah. Oh, tons. Yeah. Yeah, tons yeah. of money. So yeah. um, those skills come back, even if you are, uh, you know, w- whatever, have a have a day job, but you have some skills where down the road, like 20 years later, you can do a lot of your own work when you do decide to build a new house or something. Um, you know, yeah, that, that knowledge never goes away, Mm-mm. you know? So yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's been, it's been an exciting last 30 years. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. And you, I mean, you've established yourself and you know, you're doing really good. I'm, I'm so just, you know, again, so thrilled to, to watch it from the outside perspective and, you know, get to see it. You know, you just came off of a successful hunt. Yeah. You know, you were down there with uh, Big Chino and, and yep. those guys doing a, a desert hunt. Um, and just getting to watch, you know, that there was the picture of you with your buck and everything yeah. like that. And all the guys that were along on you, along on that trip with you and everything like that. It's just so cool to see. Yeah, no, it's, I've been... Uh, incredibly blessed from the time I was a kid with the knife makers I got involved with, um, parents I had, and then, and then getting into this industry and meeting so many of like the good people, Mm -hmm. um, that, that happen to be a part of really big brands or cool brands. Um, well, and I think a lot of that too is speaks for the individual that you are yourself and, you know, like, and, and it's exactly what you're saying, the way that you developed yourself in the knife world and then not leaving that world, still being a part of that world, but transitioning into a different aspect of that world Mm -hmm. and getting to apply those same talents and people skills, Mm -hmm. you know, floats over into this world. And, and I think good people attract good people. And I think when, when you are a good person and you are a genuine person and you're not only out for the betterment of yourself, but you're, you're out for the elevation of, all the people that are around us like it will attract that and yeah. i and and at 100 percent, looking at where you're at and what you've been able to do and you know everything like that it's a direct reflection of you being a good genuine person and having gone through the rungs of learning and understanding and building those relationships in other industries you know, you're able to bring those skills and apply it to a new industry and the same caliber of decent, good people. Yep. Um, excuse me, but bringing that back up, you yep. know, and, and getting to climb again, yep. which in itself is a whole new box of worms, you know, yeah. a whole new can of worms. And Oh, it's super exciting because it's, um, even though I am making knives right now, it's so much different, like learning the production world and learning the outdoor industry. And Mm -hmm. it's just all new people. And like you say, a lot of the skills and a lot of the, uh, the things kind of transfer over as far as people skills and relationships. But it's also, that's also why it's so exciting is because it's new. And, um, what's been really refreshing and really cool to see is I've always been, a supporter of the outdoor industry just as a hunter mm-hmm. and just a regular dude and then getting to kind of get into it and see that the people actually in the industry behind all these big you know you see big brands like yeti or leopold or black rifle or whatever yeah um 
you just think, you, you know, as a regular person, you just see a big brand. And it just seems massive. You don't even know if there's even real people involved. Yeah. And then you get involved in the industry and you see that actually it's a pretty small network of people. And, dude, everybody, I've met, like so many of the people behind all these big successful brands have good people. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see like how they've become major brands is is because it's actually like regular, just good people building them mm-hmm. and working for them and um, man, I think that definitely correlates to a lot of those brands' success, yeah. you know, and, um, it would have been really disappointing to get involved into it and then realize like, oh, wow, this is just a cesspool of like terrible people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but in, it's the opposite. It's just like, God, it's just a cool tribe of really neat people. Yeah. I mean, I would say that there's a lot of really good people. There's also a lot of really shitty people as well, though. Like, yeah. I mean, I won't downplay that at all. I've, I've had my fair share of of you know there's just i think in every industry Mm -hmm. no matter where you go there's always going to be terrible people but the good is that you know like i was saying the good genuine people attract each other yeah you know and and it's easy to stay out of and that's a good point and maybe that's kind of what's gone on is you yeah when you swim with a certain kind of fish, you tend to attract those kind of fish. You oh, know? Yeah. And, um, I've always definitely tried, like like I said, as a kid, I, I was always looking up and trying to talk to the best people. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just skill-wise. There were, same thing with the knife world. There were a couple guys that were pretty big-time guys that were kind of shitbags. Yeah, yeah, pricks and didn't want to talk to a kid and beat a kid. Um, most of those guys I passed. Mm-hmm. Which is cool because some of those guys were guys that it's were It's funny like, how that happened. They didn't want to share anything. <laughs> like, you know, you're a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid. Like, how did you do this? How did you do that? And there's guys that were re- – the knife-making community in general is super sharing. Mm-hmm. Like, even today, like uh, a guy like Andy Arabito with half-face blades. Like, mm-hmm. we're quote-unquote competitors, right? Yeah. Well, he came to my table at Big Sky. We, we finally – like, we've been around each other, like, in the internet world, but we've never met. Yeah came met bullshitted i was actually up shooting when he came back to my table and bought a knife because he knows i probably wouldn't i wouldn't have sold him one if i was standing there but he came back and bought one yeah and then um you know like he's like let's do something together and so nobody knows this this is first place i've said it but like i sent him 10 blades of ours that were finished and he's going to put handles on them and we're going to sell them as kind of like collaboration collab knives just that's so cool and it's like we could be bitter like rivals and i could say screw half face blades and ours are better or it's like instead it's like oh they're doing cool shit yeah like elevate each other that's what it's all about and i i've found that a lot you know there's like there are the people out there that don't want to help other Mm -hmm. people or they want to stay in that competitive negative space and uh there's no benefit to that you know it's everybody is trying to help each other you Mm -hmm. know and if if we don't come together and help each other and and do those collaborative projects and work within the same space together as peers and mentors and and leaders and you know team members the fuck is the point right what are we doing what are we really doing if we're not you know trying to elevate each other yep you know and and i think that really for me that really came it really all started again back at winterstrong yeah you know with bert and uh 
his whole kind of tribe and family he's oh, yeah. involved with and I was so fortunate to get to go this last year like yeah. getting invited out to that I remember the phone call between Bert and myself when we were first discussing that excuse me I can't remember where I was on my way back from but you know talking to him and you know him telling me how appreciative he was of what I was doing and and mm-hmm. how much it had, had affected him and where he was at and getting to experience that kind of cooking way and the whole it's that whole family feel i mean we, yeah. we did it here yeah you know you weren't able to be here but we did it with our veterans event just a few weeks ago and um dude it was that's how we started the weekend off yeah like they all got here in the afternoon <laughs> nobody knows each other these weren't a bunch of people the only guy i knew was jay and kayla the couple um from black rifle but the rest of the vets i didn't know yeah and uh they didn't know each other so right so it's a it's kind of a weird dynamic like all these different military guys from different backgrounds yeah. and different branches and like nobody knows even us how's this going to be and the first thing we did was a flip-flop and talk about bringing people together people are real like quick. what are you doing you're gonna and i like pull out this whole leg and <laughs> mule deer leg to look at you like you're fucking crazy yeah i'm like what is this dude doing you know and <laughs> like throw it down and i kind of start explaining it and showing it and like in less half, than a minute uh, oh eating. yeah dude and and then a half hour later like the whole feel of it's just like we've been together for an entire weekend already yeah and by the end of the night i mean yeah it was uh it was such a cool way to like bring everyone together yeah and it's, what and that's how it is with every time i've seen you do that yeah. when we were at that yeti party and um you know winter strong and everywhere i've seen you do one of those yeah. It's that feel, yeah. you know, and you're all eating off the same piece of meat. It's pretty yeah. cool. It's pretty neat. And it's funny. It's funny for me watching it grow and watching it literally change people's lives and how they're preparing their animals and what they're doing in their pack out. And it's changing their entire hunt experience. And, uh, you know, I'm getting videos from guys in Colorado, in Oklahoma, New York, you know, all over the Midwest where people are like, they're calling me, they're asking how to do it. They want to know how to do it. They want to do it themselves, you know, and, and all this. And I'm always an open book about it. Like, you know, someone wants to do it. Yeah. Here's my number. Call me. I'll walk you through as much as I possibly can, Mm -hmm. you know, anywhere where you're going to have questions and watching that grow has just been, you know, cause for me, it's, that's been my entire life. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know any different, you know, and, watching it grow inside of an industry and inside of a world has been totally remarkable. And what's really neat is getting to see other people having the exact same experience that I've been fortunate enough to have my entire life. And I'm not there. I'm not, yep. I'm not the cook for it. Yeah, you but know? you are. Cause your sauce was there and everyone's like, yeah. what is this stuff? Like, cause everyone's <laughs> like, we're eating freaking mule deer. Like, like really? I don't want to fucking eat this. I don't want to eat a freaking mule deer, sagebrushy yeah. mule deer. And guys were like, literally like, this is the best meal I've ever had in my life. Yeah. And it's a mule deer, yeah. you know? And normally, honestly, that leg on that mule deer would usually either be burger or sausage. Yep. Honestly. I mean, yeah. that's how typically you take the best steaks and then, you know, but the, it totally. And then the rest is grind. Right. And it yeah. totally changes uh, just everything about it all the way to the final to the final eating of it it's just super cool yeah and my wife after having your flip-flop twice last year she was like 
you have got to get me some legs in the freezer because <laughs> <laughs> it's it it, it it is it is a change man and it's there hasn't been a person that i haven't cooked for like <clears throat> god i wish i could remember what event but i mean countless times where people are like i will not eat mule deer and mm-hmm. i'll i'll tell them like straight up like you're gonna eat this mule deer and you're gonna like it like, yeah there i'm you could tell me whatever you want to tell me, but this is fact. Yeah. And I've have yet in the, I mean, I've cooked over 30, over 35 legs just this year alone. And I have yet to meet a person that has been like, no, you know, and I'm coming no. from like, it's not possible. We'd cook <laughs> two, maybe four legs in a year, mm-hmm. you know, to now I'm cooking legs of, all different kinds of animals you yeah, know i mean I, at the yeti the place hell? was that goat or what uh, was that a yeti yeah it was a rocky mountain sheep like yeah sheep and that's like a once in a lifetime opportunity for 99.9 percent of anybody to ever yep be able to eat and everybody walks away like this is the best meat i've ever had in my life. i know you know no or, it's crazy yeah it's 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 fun man yeah it's fun but well, should we go make some content? Yeah, let's go talk to Josh. Not Josh. Let's go talk to Brandon. Brandon. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to, uh, we might even have to throw a little, we're, we're going to have to do flip-flop a little different. We might have to fire up the forge and cook a little meat in front of the forge. Oh, that'd be fun. Uh, if yeah. you're down for that, that'd be a neat experience. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched you guys do that. Lily yeah. was posting some stuff. It was pretty neat to see. We'll uh, we'll do the, the, knife, the knife maker flip-flop. So. Yeah. Yeah. Skewer some meat. Sounds good, man. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. You know, thanks for having me out. And, uh, we'll do it again. I got to get you on mine. And, and, uh, yeah. Once hunting season calms down, I mean, you're, it's cool now because you're only a few hours away. So, yeah. I'm not in California. This winter we'll have to get together. And, oh, we got plenty of time to do all kinds of silly shit. Yeah. Forever. No, I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to have you in the state. (laughs) Yeah. Me too. Thanks, man. Thanks, brother. Thanks for tuning into the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website, Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the flip flop guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.